0: You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your host, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff klobo better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Good evening, Bobo. How are you doing? No
2: complaints.
0: How are you doing, Cliff? Um, I would say no complaints, but that would just mean I'm not trying hard enough. <laughs> no, but seriously, things are good. Things are good. Had a day off today. I kind of poked around and played some music with a good friend of mine. And yeah, I really cherish my days off after not having very many for so long. But um, and now I get to hang out with you and a special guest tonight. Um, that's exciting. I understand that we had a last minute cancellation. So I called in a favor from a good friend. You know that our guest tonight uh, he's a host of monster X radio. He's a, uh, one of the key figure heads in the, the Olympic project, Shane Corson. Yeah. I was going to go on with accolades for a while, but there's no reason to suck up to him. He is my friend. So up here, Shane, welcome to the show, man. I'm glad you're finally on, uh, on, on Bigfoot and beyond with us here. So thanks so much for coming on, especially last minute. No,
1: thanks for the invite. I'm, I'm glad to be here and, uh, I don't need any accolades or anything like that. I'm just I'm glad to be on the show.
2: All right. Hey, thanks for coming on, bud. Good to talk to you.
1: Likewise. Uh, likewise. It's great to talk with you guys and to be on the show. So thanks for uh, inviting me on. So your show,
2: X Radio, that's one of the three Bigfoot podcasts I'll listen to.
1: <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that, Bobs. Uh, you know, uh, it, we've been, you know, I've been recording with, uh, X Radio since about 2013 and it's a labor of love, uh, their show was created originally to discuss the Bigfoot phenomena and uh, talk with witnesses and guests and and some of the research that we do within the LIMP project. And so it's uh, it's been, a like I said, a labor of love, but something that I'm very passionate about. And uh, so far, we're one of the, the most longstanding podcasts out there on this phenomena. And trust me, I'm, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. There's been many that have come before me and many that are are bigger and better, no doubt about it, but it's something that I'm very passionate about because I'm very passionate about the Sasquatch subject. So to share that with the public and and to talk to witnesses and to share information and uh, whatnot, it's a pleasure, and it's something I'm going to continue to do throughout the years.
2: Yeah, I mean, you guys do a great job. And the thing I really appreciate about your show is that I know it's solid. Like, I don't have to go, is this real? Is this this, guy, you know, is this guest wacky? Like, you guys are fact-driven and get to the source, and it's just an excellent, excellent source of information for the squatch.
1: Right on, right on. I appreciate that. I appreciate it coming from you. I know you've been investigating this subject matter for longer than I have, uh, but I appreciate it coming from you. And and to be on this show tonight is it's a true pleasure. And yeah, I know we're gonna have a little bit of fun tonight. So.
0: All right. Yeah, you know, one of the things, I had no idea that Monster X has been going on since 2013. That's a, That's kind of a long time now because, as you mentioned, you said you stand on the shoulders of giants, right, because of the many that have come before you. But podcasts come and go. I mean, holy smokes! They come and go like the seasons do. There's there's this one that's just uh, disappears, and so just the fact that you've been on for you know six plus years now, um, that's really saying something, especially for a podcast, because that's one of the things, one of the determining factors for me at least about anybody in the Bigfoot field. What no matter if you're doing research or a podcast or or whatever, it's longevity. Um, lots of people come and go all the time but if you can hang on and carve yourself carve yourself a niche that you enjoy occupying um, that sets you aside in bigfootland for sure
1: and that's the thing is longevity i think there's too many individuals that get involved with the subject matter whether they're into podcasting or they're enthusiasts in the subject matter or investigators or researchers whatever have you it's longevity this uh you know when we get involved in encrypted and you get involved in in a subject matter such as Sasquatch, uh, you're in it for the long haul. You're not, it's that simple. And unfortunately, you know, we have nowadays, you have this social media thing going on where you get uh, instant gratification. And and, then in a lot of cases you don't get that instant gratification uh, as we, many of us have, have experienced over the years, you know, right. So, uh, fortunately for me, you know, I know these, these uh, things, uh, these creatures, these beings, whatever you want to call them, to exist. So I want to talk about it. I want to talk about it with people. I want to talk about it with individuals. I want to discuss every aspect of this phenomena. By doing the podcast, I've learned so much. And so that's my, my goal, is to learn, to, to spread the word about Sasquatch. And, uh, you know, and wherever it goes, it goes. And so it's been, a, it's been a, a labor of love, but it's been a lot of fun over these years. And, uh, Monterey X isn't going anywhere. And, uh, the Sasquatch phenomenon, Sasquatch isn't going anywhere. Uh, they're out there.
0: i you're like a televangelist. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it's, it's,
2: you're with right. a great organization. For a lot of people that don't know, you're part of the Olympic project, not the Olympic games, but the Olympic, the Olympic peninsula in Washington state and you're sitting, you've had a lot of fun and it's been gratifying. And I think that's a testament to you to the guy that started that Derek Randall's, I mean, that guy has a, he always has fun. He's always out there. And I think you guys are definitely the top research group out there. You guys in that um, project area X crew, the top two uh, field teams, I think.
1: Bubs, that means a lot come from you again. Uh, You know, the element project uh, definitely was an organization that I, I looked up to and uh, it, it just, the way the cards fell, I ended up uh, meeting Derek Randall's and becoming a part of the project. And I've never looked back. I've never looked back. And that's a really cool thing. And so, yeah, I, I believe we're going places. I think we're uh, approaching the subject matter, right? I really do. And, and, and not, and I'm not bashing any other organization or group out there or individual. There's a, there's many, many, individuals and groups out there that I think are doing amazing things uh, within this subject matter. The Olympic Project, it's just a group that I happen to be involved with up here in Washington State. That's why I moved here. Uh, that I think we are um, on the same page as an organization, as a group, and I think we're um, we're making headway. It, it's an exciting time to be involved with the subject matter, the Sasquatch subject matter. I really believe that. I'm not a pessimist. I'm an optimist. And so, it's a really good time to be involved with this subject matter i met a lot of great people uh, individuals through the Olympic project and i worked with a lot of great individuals through the Olympic project uh, that are involved with this organization so yeah it it, it is um one of the uh, honestly one of the best things i've done in my, with my life i fully believe that and so i you know through the Olympic project i've met a lot of great people including the U-Bobes and cliff and so it's it's a it's a fun endeavor. It's a great endeavor, and and we'll see where it goes.
2: Yeah, you know, I just remembered. I'm actually a member of the Olympic Project, but I haven't really been involved last year. So I hardly ever get up there anymore. But yeah, I just remember that. I was I, I used to be on the website. I'm not sure if I
1: still am. You are. You're loosely. You know, <laughs> you know, we have a lot of loosely associated individuals with the Olympic Project. You know, that are are kind of tied in and. You know, if something big happens or if uh, we need feedback or when not, you know, uh, there's a lot of individuals like that, such as yourself, Bobes. And, uh, you know, uh, you're definitely a part of the alignment project. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, Cliff, I know Cliff's kind of uh, that guy that's, uh, you know, independent and all that. You know, but when things happen or um, we need feedback or information, you know, we can go to individuals such as Cliff uh, and individuals uh, such as uh, Dr. Meldrum, who's loosely associated with the the olympic project, so it's it's a you know when it comes to the organization, there's a lot of individuals involved with the Olympic project. Uh, not all not all uh, members are or those associated with the project are like you know mainstream or or you know core members. But we keep in contact, we talk, and that's what it's all about. It, you know, a little bit of collaboration, a little bit of talk, what's going on, you know, and, and uh, so that's how, how we run the Olympic project now. And like I said, uh, it, yeah, you are a part of the Olympic project, Bubs, whether you like it or not. <laughs>
0: uh, well, you know, I think, honestly, <laughs> I think you're, you're, you're almost downplaying you guys a little bit, which is modest of you, because one of the things that comes to mind um, when I think about the Olympic project is field work. It's so much more than just talking to one another and comparing notes and that sort of, it's actual field work. And you guys as a group, um, again, along with the NAWAC guys, like down the the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, I think have the most field hours logged in as of any group. The BFRO, I suppose, you know, is way up there too, just because it's such a vast organization. There's so many people. Um, Those those hours would add up pretty quickly as well. But um, I would put my money on the Olympic project. Uh, as far as at least, you know, the Pacific Northwest, most active field group, because you guys are gnarly, man. I've been out in the woods with you guys on a number of occasions and you don't need trails. You don't need any, you don't need handrail. You don't need walking. stick. you just go, Oh, I want to go that direction. And you go, man, you guys are monsters. And, um, you know, it like I, I am always very careful about what I say yes to do with you guys. Cause frankly, going out with you guys in the woods kicks my ass.
2: The Olympic project has put out about 50 game cameras on the Olympic Peninsula. And you guys have done a long-term monitoring project on known Bigfoot travel routes. And you've also been doing a lot of study on those Bigfoot nests that were discovered on that timberland.
1: Oh yeah. Now you just open up a can of worms there. I mean, so the, to backtrack a little bit yeah so we used to really focus on trail cameras uh, spe- you know before my time rich drumeau and Derek randalls uh, the co-founders of the olympic project uh, really focused on trail camera placement and in placing all these trail cameras out in the olympics uh, we still do that but not to the extreme not like what we used to and uh, that's based on a lot of things um not that we don't use trail cameras i think trail cameras you know the right place at the right time when you're looking for a Moving needle in a haystack. it's a very, very difficult endeavor. Uh, you know, when it comes to trail cameras again, I don't think people really understand uh, the complexity there. It, you're really looking for it's kind of arrogant to say you can place a trail camera out there and get a, a picture of a sasquatch. I find it very arrogant. and there's really in the scheme of things, not that many trail camera uh, cameras out there. so, Yes, we still utilize that and we still do that. Um, We've kind of shifted focus, but over the years, you know, um, we've done a lot of different things. And so, you know, we do utilize troll cameras and uh, that's part of our, part of our thing, but uh, you know, um, you know, getting to the, the nest site, you know, uh, honestly, it's, it's, it's been a fascinating um, endeavor Uh, obviously Uh, If you've listened to any Monster X radio shows or, uh, you know, listened to any lectures done by, you know, uh, Dr. Jeff Meldrum or myself or Derek Randalls, we did not find the nest site. Uh, There was a timber cruiser that came across these nests and then got a hold of Derek Randalls because he knew of Derek Randalls being involved with Bigfoot and uh, led us to this nest site that has become... You know my passion and it's become uh, such a great endeavor over the years uh, that uh, I, I've spent my uh, it's where I spend my time is in the nest site or in the adjacent areas, hoping to uh, find more evidence, hoping to find more nests. And so the nest site is it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. I really believe that. And, and Cliff, of course, you've been out
0: there, Cliff. Yeah, a number of times. Sure, sure. Yeah. 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 It's, it's fantastic. So it's, yeah. It, the whole place is just really cool. Um, and Derek saw or Derek thinks he saw one out there. I mean, it sounded like he saw one out there. Didn't really great look at it, but he, what else could have been? Um, there's been footprint finds out uh, inside the nest site. And uh, Shane and I found a footprint um, basically across the river from the nest site after a, a two persons or a two Sasquatch sighting. Um, the whole area is just going crazy. Or at least it was for a number of years.
2: We Cliff and I have talked about it on the show before, Shane. But we have new listeners all the time. Can you give a brief rundown on what these nests are and how
1: they came to your attention? So Derek Randalls was contacted by a timber cruiser uh, several years ago uh, that had, was out uh, lining up, you know, a tree cut. He was, you know, timber cruiser cruising the area, out uh, lining up trees that the, the line that was supposed to be cut. And uh, he's out surveying the area. That's what he w- did as a living. You know, he's a-, a timber surveyor. This is a 40-acre clear cut, right? Exactly, exactly. And so um, he was out, you know, across from this creek bed, cruising this area. And, and so he was uh, marking this area. And he came across, you know, a-, a few nests. I think he saw two originally. And it threw him for a loop. I mean, it's completely threw this guy for a loop. This is a guy that's been doing this for 25-plus years that goes out solo, hikes. You know, he's seen Bear. He's seen seen everything out there, right, because he's out there solo, and that's his job. He comes across these nests, sees them, doesn't recognize what the heck they are. He gets a little weirded out. He gets a little weirded out and knows that uh, this is something significant and knew that uh, there was somebody that may have an answer or may have seen something similar, and that would be Derek Randall's. Derek Randles is a landscaper by trade. He had done work for this guy, I think, 10 years prior. Until he invited Derek out there to view, uh, to check out these these nests, these grand nests. And um, Derek went out there with uh, this individual and a couple of DNR, Department of Natural Resource guys, and uh, James Milling of the project went out there as well. And they get out there, and uh, they subsequently found at that time seven more nests, and including what they thought at the time was a tree nest, which ended up being, which ended up being a, a witch's broom. But that's a whole other story. I got, I can tell you guys about that in a minute. But anyway, so they found these ground nests, and in all the years uh, of. Timbering and woodland experience, which you know was well over 20 years of experience in the woods, none of them had ever seen anything like this, and that was profound. And so, uh, I, I managed to make it out there months later to check out these nests, and I'll tell you, I was I was bl- blown away. I was absolutely blown away. I, you know, I, I'm from Scotland. I made it out here to the west coast. Grew up uh, basically from '93. Uh, in San Diego, I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, researching in California, uh, Oregon and Washington. And in my years, I'm, you know, I've come across all sorts of, you know, varmints and nests and all sorts of stuff. I never in my my years ever, ever seen anything quite like this. And this was profound. These are large nests. They're ground nests, they look like a, a giant bird's nest, but they're immer woven. They're made out of huckleberry, um, you know, in this area, all the huckleberry was snapped off. The nests were made out of huckleberry tips and interwoven and made into this, this nest. And uh, as Dr. Uh, Jeff Meldrum will tell you, because he's been out there, uh, in some cases, some of the huckleberry tips were pushed into the ground and the nest was kind of woven around that. So it took intelligence. And I'll tell you, too, to build these nests, in in my uh in in my opinion, and opinions of others, including zoologists and anthropologists, it took something with an opposable thumb. So you're looking at either human or not. And I don't believe humans made these nests. It makes no sense whatsoever, given a lot of things there. But so you have these nests on um, this point coming off the uh, uh, the mountainside. So basically, what the setup is: this you have a ridge line and you have these fingers that come off this ridge line. By fingers, I mean you have these downgrade, downgraded kind of fingers that come off this ridge line. And then you have, uh, a, I mean, the huckleberry is anywhere from, you know, three to nine feet tall, and it's very thick. Like I said, Cliff's been out there. We invite a lot of people out there that uh, of academic um, value to, to look at what we're doing here and look at uh, the, the area. So you have these fingers coming off this ridgeline and at the very end of these fingers uh, over a span of a, you know, a half mile or so, a little bit less than that, you have multiple nests on these fingers. And one, you know, in the, the initial nest site, you have about seven nests and then the, the, the finger over, you have three nests and then the finger over you have, which are spaced about uh, apart from about, you know, 200 yards or so. You have multiple nests going along these fingers and they're all built the same they're all built the same and that's truly profound so whatever made a nest in this area made a nest on the next finger over and so one of the other really interesting tidbits um you know you have these ground nests right and they're you know anywhere from six to nine feet long they're oval shaped some cases very circular shaped some are You know, uh, two feet across. They're all over a foot in depth. So you have all these multiple nests in this area along this ridgeline. And then you also have bush nests, which absolutely floors me. Not only do you have the ground nests, and a lot of people have said, oh, they're, they're this or they're that. You know, they're bear, they're wood rat, which is, to me is completely ridiculous. I mean, completely Well, the, Yeah, the, and, those
0: proclaiming wood rat apparently are very familiar with wood rat these nests.
1: Right. <laughs> exactly, Cliff, exactly. They're not familiar with wood rat nests. And, and you know, being from California, living a lot of time in California, I've literally seen hundreds of wood rat nests. Um, Even if, if it was a wood rat's nest and it was dispersed by nature or other animals, it's not even close. It, these are... Built as nests. I mean, they're just yeah, that, it's yeah. just that simple, just that simple. So you so
0: you describe a bush nest. How does that differ from a ground nest?
1: Good question. so the the only way it differs is that it's not on the ground. So you have these bush nests that are in the huckleberry, which all the nests were made out of predominantly. Uh, you have these bush nests that are you know about two feet off the ground, two to three feet off the ground, built into the huckleberry bushes. Uh, that are in the same, built in the same fashion as the ground nest.
2: This area had been off limits for 40 years. It's on a 40 year cut cycle. So, and it's extremely rugged for people that think there might be someone in there. There's nobody in there. And, and I mean, it's, it's very rugged terrain.
1: This is back behind, you know, two and a half miles back behind a locked timber gate, which we have the key today. Uh, it's back behind this gate, two and a half miles. It's way off trail, and there's no business. This isn't an area that a hunter, hiker, fisherman, whatever have you is going to be in. It's just that simple. Nobody would be in this area, and to say otherwise is silly. And I've been out in this area multiple times, multiple times. It's just silly to say that anybody would be back there. No, nobody goes back there. It's it's uh, it's you know high salal, high huckleberry. It's remote. It's uh, very steep terrain, rugged, and when you get into the nest site, it's it's profound because you don't sneak into this area. You know, I've been in the nest site and heard you know uh, other researchers that we invited out to this area come down and you hear them coming a mile away. So this is a really cool area for to build a nest. With the bush nests, why they're profound to me. And to say the only project and to, I would say, science is that they not only mirror the ground nests, you have these ground nests that are, you know, huge, well-constructed, intelligently constructed, well, so are these bush nests. And the thing is, when it comes to these bush nests, Derek Randalls, I remember the conversation years ago, 2015, if I'm not mistaken, um, he he calls me and he goes, "Hey, you know, uh, we have these ground nests, and then there's a bush nest." And uh, I said, "Well, what's the significance about the bush nest?" You know, I, I this is before I ever saw them. So, what's the significance of the bush nest? Well, he'd done all this research online and, and realized uh, that you know, uh, gorillas actually, the little ones and the mothers will actually teach their young to build a bush nest uh, 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 that mirrors the ground nest. And so that's exactly what we saw out there. I'm not saying we have gorillas or silverback gorillas, you know, here in the similar west, that's just silly, right? But when you look at the behavior of the ground nest, and then you see these bush nests that are off the ground, which no uh, North American animal that I'm aware of, does, uh, that's profound. And they're built in the same fashion as the the ground nest. And so Derek Randall's did this research and discovered that, you know, it's something that, uh, you know, silverback and, 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 and cross-river gorillas and all these different uh, large primates do to teach their young. And the little ones build these practice nests. Basically, it's a practice nest. And that's exactly what I saw viewing uh, nests originally, because it's the, you know, it's, it's, they're all torn up now. The weather's taken over and they're dilapidated or disappearing. But originally, I mean, it was, it was a bush nest, just like the ground nest made out of huckleberry, not a bird's nest made in the same fashion as the ground nest. And that, that is profound to me. And in fact, we've gotten, um, not only, you know, anthropologists out to this area and primatologists that have been really kind of wowed with the, not only the ground nest, but the bush nest, but zoologists out from, uh, I can't give up the, the the zoo that these individuals came out from, but uh, we brought some zoologists that worked directly with chimpanzees and bonobos and, and gorillas out to this area, and well, they were blown away. They were absolutely blown away by what they saw and it was funny because what they had said was that they could almost look at a particular nest and see uh, one of their individual primates that they work with directly building that nest. Like there was a sort of characteristic to it. There was a sort of build to it. And they said, you know, that's very, very similar to what we see uh, in-house at these zoos and Many of these individuals have worked outside of zoos, outside of the country. You know, say in Africa and whatnot, and seen nests and whatnot. So, to date, we found two. I found the second one, uh, nests built into a bush. So I called a bush nest. Uh, originally there was one. Now there's two, and they're in completely different op- uh, They're in completely different fingers. Uh, not in the same original nest site that was found. It, one of the bush nests that I uh, discovered was in a completely different area. and uh, so it it basically shows that whatever made the original nest site or, or constructed those nests, and I think there was multiple individuals, whatever they were, <laughs> uh, that uh, it was it was found throughout all these fingers. And um, you know, we can debate and argue about you know, what time of year and all that stuff. Uh, if it was a, you know, whatnot. So, uh, but it's just profound. It's just profound. And I got my opinions on, I got my opinions on why, um, these may be Sasquatch related, but, uh, I'll shut up.
2: How far apart were these bush nests and were they the same size and like, was maybe like one look older than the other one? Could it have been like the same individual getting older and it built like one, then the next year, built another one, another ridge over, you know, could you guys get any idea of that sort of thing?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's a great question. So how far apart they were um, several hundred yards apart, you know, uh, probably 200, 250 yards apart, you know, given the fingers uh, as far as age. No, I, 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 don't have an age on that because uh, when I was out there, uh, you know, I, <laughs> you know, there was different seasons that it transpired. So originally when the original nest site was discovered by that timber cruiser, the nests were still green. The huckleberry was still green. And subsequently, you know, over the you know months and whatnot, it goes brown, you know, after about uh, a couple of months, it goes brown done this experiment. It takes about two months. And so no, I actually have no idea um, As to the age, if, uh, you know, how old these nests were, uh, that I don't know. All I know is that they were built probably, and I'm just saying probably, around the same time frame. The nests were, the bush nests were exactly alike and exactly the same size, almost exactly the same size the bush nests were. The ground nests, well, they ranged in size. You had ground nests that were two feet across that were over a foot uh, in depth. And that was the one thing, is almost all the nests were about the same depth. You know, uh, not the same circumference, but the same depth, um, how they were uh, constructed. And so, though they were many, many nests built in, say, like the original nest site, there was, I think, seven to begin with, or seven in total. Um, They were constructed the same, they were about the same depth, but they were not the same size. And so, uh, the one thing with the bush nests were, you know, the two that we've discovered, uh, they were the same size and about the same, uh, amount of feet off the ground, two to three feet off the ground, but constructed the same in adjacent areas. I mean, two, two 250 yards away on a, you know, uh, different finger coming off this ridge line. So, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where it just, you know, at the end of the day, you go, hmm. But, you know, to for for those listeners out there, uh, it's not just ground nests. It's not just ground nests. We have these large nests, you know, obviously found by a timber cruiser that looked at them and goes, what the hell am I looking at? Uh, you know, and then we have, you know, in, you know, Southwatch investigators come out there like such as Derek Randall's and James Milling go, what the hell are we looking at? And DNR members going, what the hell are we looking at? Right, we got all that, right? We got these crown masks. Um, By the way,
0: DNR, uh, for those people listening throughout the country, is Department of Natural Resources. Um, Just whatever that's worth. There's different acronyms in different states and probably even different countries. So heads up on that one. So you know, people who work for the state have come out to check these things out and give their two cents.
1: Absolutely, thanks, Cliff. Uh, That's important, very important. You know, I hate throwing those acronyms out there without people understanding what I'm talking about. But yeah, Makes it sound cool. so yeah, right, right DNR <laughs> uh, <laughs> So you have you have that that faction. You have that, you know, whatever. Um, but also, so we've collected hair out of these nest sites. we collected hair and uh, visually speaking, send them off to, well, Mel Dr. Meldrum out of Idaho State University, uh, has visually inspected these, as well as some of his students at, at his uh, uh, university there. Uh, Cindy Dosen uh, has visually inspected and visualized, you know, looked at these under a microscope, these hairs that we've collected, and we've collected a crap load of hairs. Um, they don't match anything here in North America. They appear to be primate, as Dr. Meldrum will tell you. And uh, they lack a medulla, which is interesting. You know, I mean, humans, you know, for the most part, have a medulla, which is if, you, if you're talking about a medulla when it comes to hair, you're basically look at it like a pencil. It's, it's a lead in the middle of the pencil. That's what it's lacking, uh, which is consistent with a lot of the uh, unknown or suspicious hair found throughout the country uh, when visually looked at. So – uh, we have this hair. We have this hair that's unknown. Looks primate. Uh, that's been visually looked at. Um, you, there's not much you can do with DNA there. I mean, that's that's a whole nother argument. But uh, you know, we're talking about you know age of hair and whatnot. So you can't do a whole lot of DNA work on uh, old hair. But you can look at it visually, and so that's interesting. So we have this unknown, possibly primate hair, and there were tracks found in this area. Um, this, this area that these nests consist in has a seasonal salmon Creek that at certain times of year, specifically like say late October, but definitely in November, the salmon gets stacked up below this, uh, nest site, uh, and, uh, I mean, talk about the amount of protein, and then you have all the unglets in this area, and you have all the salmonberry and huckleberry and salalberry and Oregon grape in this area, and then you have all the mushrooms. The nest site really consists of just the perfect storm, the absolute perfect storm for something to survive and thrive. And so, to answer. Maybe not to answer, but to give my opinion on this area, if it is indeed Sasquatch-related. And I'm not saying it is, but I have my lean-to. I'll say this. Uh, This would be based on the size of the nest, the amount of nests in this area, the rarity of nests finds uh, in general. This would be something, the perfect birthing area or uh, nursery, um, if I can say that, nursery, for something to give birth or have a little one around and feed upon all the protein and everything in this, this area, that time of year, um, it just speaks volumes. Uh, and basically what I'm getting at is this, we have unknown nests, unknown behavior. And so tell me, uh, one of my questions to scientists, tell me what made these nests. Tell me why they're there. Tell me what constructed them and how they constructed them. Cause uh, so far, all of the scientific individuals that want to stay under the radar—they don't want, you know—they don't want to be blasted because this is a taboo subject. Uh, they have no answers. What they tell me is that this is very reminiscent of primate behavior, and this is not bear behavior. This isn't uh, any other s- sort of known animal behavior. What they tell me is that this is primate behavior. This is exactly what they would see in the wild, and in house at certain you know zoos and whatnot. So that to me is profound. That tells me a lot. Uh, you know, I'm a layman. I'm I'm no scientist. Trust me, I'm no scientist. Uh, I'm a great tracker and all that stuff, but uh, that means little when it comes to the the phenomena. So uh, what we're looking at here is something unknown. And if science doesn't want to look at that,
0: you know, uh, as a whole. Uh, if they're not interested, then shame on them. Well, there's a couple other pieces of supporting evidence because basically what we have, we have a question, right? And all science starts with a question. You find these things that, or uh, the the cruiser found these things in the woods. They don't they, they don't look like anything else he's ever seen. And clearly he's seen Baroness, and that's the other you know, probable candidate, you know, um, or likely candidate, but it's not one of those, right? So he, well, maybe this is a Bigfoot thing. So what does he do? He calls in Derek Randall's to test his hypothesis. Derek has never seen one of these things. That's interesting. So he doesn't get anywhere with that. You guys start calling in experts, um, over the years now, um, you've had bear people look at it and say, that's not bear. You've had primatologists look at it or people who are experienced with primates going, Yeah, that looks a lot like what we're used to. So there's a precedent. There's a pattern. And not only is there a pattern with the ground nests, you have these bush nests, as you call them, that are actually off the ground. And it turns out there are parallels in ape behavior with that as well, where gorillas teach their young ones to make nests in the trees as practice nests. Okay, so that's interesting. There's a strong parallel there. Now, but there's other... and. It, it Could it's, could this area support a Sasquatch? Absolutely. And there's a lot of food. It's a lot of cover. Um, it's a little desolate area, um, etc. cetera. Um, but there's other bits of evidence here that support the hypothesis that these are of Sasquatch origin um, that you haven't mentioned yet. Number one, tell us about those rocks that were found at the initial <laughs> nest.
1: Damn right. Uh, there were two rocks found at what I, what I call the point nest. So you have this finger come down the ridge, right before you head down this steep ravine. Um, you have this large nest at the point, right on the cusp of the ledge that leads down to the seasonal salmon creek. And uh, what was weird was there was two rocks sitting right there that James Millian had found of the Olympic Project sitting above ground. Well, when he picked up these two rocks, he's looking at them and they were about softball size, a little bit smaller than a softball, but fit in the palm of his hands. Uh, They had score marks on them. They had score marks. So what does that mean? Well, I've seen, I actually still have these rocks. I I took them back. We left them out there for a number of years, and then I took them back with me because I I just wanted uh, that memento, and they're not going anywhere, right? They're rocks. So I I took them back with me, and the score marks are still there. So you had something at one point in time smack these rocks together or pound these rocks together and if you're you know listening to this show or are familiar with the sasquatch phenomena uh sasquatch supposedly right uh smacks rocks together or throw rocks you know that sort of thing well that's exactly what my opinion is when it comes to what we found here you have this this point nest this nest that is basically quite probably and possibly the the alpha male or whatever that you know if this is sasquatch related at this point and you had these rocks that were clanked or smacked together i mean obvious score marks there was no 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 uh, messing around with that there had really obvious score marks and so that uh, was rather profound uh, when james found that and having viewed these rocks oh yeah Obviously, score marks, and they were smacked together at one point in time. Something uh, physically picked up these rocks and smacked them together. It's just that simple. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to mention, because you got me on a a run here. Um, one of the other things i uh, I noticed in the nest site, the original nest site, and subsequently the other nest sites along these fingers that were you know spread apart, was, was the fact that the, a lot of the huckleberry. Branches were completely stripped of their leaves. Now, once again, I'm gonna mention gorillas, but I'm not saying we have gorillas here in the Pacific northwest. I'm just talking about behavior possibly. So you have these huckleberry branches that are that are full of leaves during the year, right? Well, in the nest site, they were completely stripped of their leaves. Whether that was a food source uh, water source, because gorillas, you know, they get predominantly most of their water, uh, their, their water consumption from leaves. They don't go, you know, drink out of creeks and whatnot. They do, but predominantly speaking, most of their water source comes from leaves and, and whatnot. So that was interesting. All the huckleberry branches there were completely stripped of leaves. Now, what's interesting about that is, Uh, you have these nests laid out in a very uh, militaristic fashion. You have the point nest and you have this kind of triangular-shaped nest site, uh, basically speaking. And so what was interesting was a lot of the branches, uh, not only were they stripped of leaves, but in some cases they were twisted behind other branches – And uh, at first, I didn't really think too much about that. I thought, oh, you know, know, it's just a twisting of a branch and whatnot. But when I actually, and I've been called out about this for sitting in the nest for DNA, you know, uh, (laughs) contamination, which was after the fact, is already take DNA samples from these nests. But I haven't sat in the nest and looked at the next nest over, especially the smaller nest and the bush nest and whatnot, noticed was that. By twisting those branches or those nest uh, branches that I, I noticed that were twisted and bent over, what I noticed was that I had a great view of the next nest over. In fact, I had a great uh, view of all the nests. So in my presumption, in, in my mind, what I what I thought was that if I wanted to— view the next nest over or any of the nests Well, i had to move this branch and that's exactly what i saw there it was it was something that you know uh, it just appeared to be pure intelligence uh yeah so and, they made uh, windows basically exactly
0: exactly so yeah, you know and, exactly. and i want to comment on something because i've been heckled for uh, lying down in one of the nests as well i think it would be very unscientific not to you don't want to pull dna out of that nest maybe You know, pull DNA out of one of the other twenty nests that there are around. But I think it'd it'd be foolish to not lie down in one of the nests because if you're going to test, like, could a human-shaped animal use this as a bed, well, experiment number one, lie down in it. You know what I mean? How was it? It was very comfortable, I found. You know, like when when I first saw the I saw one of the smaller ones first, maybe five feet or so by three and a half feet, maybe I'm guessing. Um, I said, This can't be a bigfoot thing because bigfoots are big. Well, that's a jackass stupid thing to think. Cause when I laid down in it, um, you know, I just curled up, man, and it was super comfy. Like it was very uh I don't know, like bushcrafty in some ways. I mean, it wasn't built like a human ever would, but man, it was really comfortable. There's Matt- a nice ice. What, uh, what? what was that? Like a mattress. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's like true. a, yeah. Yeah, very much like a mattress and, and a mattress of air. Cause you know, if you know anything about bushcraft, one of the things you do to stay alive in extreme situations is you, you take off a bunch, you, you pull a bunch of branches off of a local fir tree or something and you pile them up because you want that cushion that mattress, shall we say, of air underneath you because that isolates you uh, it, 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 from the ground. You know, it, it, um, oh, it what's the word I'm looking for? Not isolates, uh, insulates. It insulates, insulates you from the, yeah. the ground so the ground doesn't suck all the warmth out of your body. And this does exactly the same thing. It, it is a brilliant design, um, but very simple, man. I mean, very squatchy in a lot of ways, I would say. Um, and these rocks that, uh, Shane was talking about, they were found on the surface. And he mentioned that very briefly and passing over there passed over pretty quickly, but that's important because most of the rocks are embedded in the ground in this spot, you know, because they, the rocks may have been on top one time, but decades and decades of falling, you know, litter from the trees, you know, uh, needles and fir branches and whatever else, which it, it buries, whatever's there on the surface, but these were right there on top. So they were placed there relatively recently,
1: yeah, exactly. you know, Cliff, you know I'm kind of like you know passing over a lot of this stuff rather quickly, but you're absolutely right. I mean, these were the only two rocks in an area that were, say, above surface, above ground, and that's and they stood out. They stood out like a sore thumb. I mean, that's why they were picked up and looked at because all the other uh, rocks, which there's really no other rocks in this area, there's a few. Uh, these were above ground and right next to a nest that, that happened to be on the point. So that's I mean, that's profound. The, you know, something else I wanted to mention was the fact that originally when when uh, this area was the, discovered, uh, there were a few what we would call, uh, I guess tree nests. At the time, there was a couple of or excuse me, let me backtrack. At the time, uh, one of the I- really interesting things discovered in this area was this, what we we thought was a tree nest uh, above the original nest site find. Uh, it looked like a nest. It, it was way up in the tree. It was a dark matter. It looked like a nest, uh, you know, 80 feet off the ground, ended up being over 90 uh, feet off the ground. Um, it was very interesting. And so we're like, Oh man, this is very reminiscent of like, say, guerrilla behavior. Uh, well, it turned out after paying, uh, you know, the OP paid a climber to climb this tree uh, to to look at this, what we thought was a tree nest, possibly. Well, it turned out to be a tree nest. It turned out to be witch's broom. It's basically a deformity in, a, in, a, in the tree, which is a, a fungal growth Um, it's, it, it it was about a pallet size. I mean, if you guys know what a pallet is, you know, uh, it's about a pallet size, uh, up in this tree. And it was a deformity in this tree and it's in, and to date we found two of these things. And of course they happen to be in close proximity to two different nest sites along this, uh, ridge line, um, two, and all my years of Sasquatch research, uh, all my years of hiking and whatnot. I've never seen anything like this. So now we have two of these anomalies in, you know, which were freaking weird. Uh, We paid a a climber to climb one of them. Well, it turns out to be, like I said, witch's broom, which is a fungal growth. So the interesting thing about about that is this. uh, There were burrows uh, going into this fungal growth, this anomaly in this tree, in in this pine tree. Um, well, well, I, I asked the climber that climbed the tree to give me samples of this fungal growth. And he brought down chunks of this, you know, he cut it and brought me down samples. And, um, I sent it off to Cindy Dosen and she visually looked at, um, the hair samples that I had plucked from this, this growth. Cause I found a few hairs in this fungal growth. Well, it turned out to be raccoon. Okay. Well, cool. You got these. This fungal, you know, witch's broom growth. You have raccoons basically making a nest out of this fungal growth. The interesting thing was, so uh, about a year prior, Sandy had looked at some hair in one of the nests in the initial nest site that uh, turned out to be raccoon. Cool, raccoon hair in the nest, big deal. So what makes this really interesting is that at one point in time, on one of the ground nests below, where the the uh, below the fungal growth, the witch's broom existed, uh, there was a dead raccoon at one point tying one of those ground nests. And of course, in a different area, an uh, adjacent area where there was more nests along this finger or along this uh, ridgeline, there was another growth uh, witch's broom grown there. Well, so what I'm getting at is this. So you have this dead raccoon at some point in time in the ground mass. You have this dead raccoon hair found in the ground mess. And then you have raccoons up above, uh, obviously, in this witch's broom uh, that obviously was raccoon. Um, point being is this. You... I think it paints a picture. I really think it paints a picture that the Sasquatch were looking for. If 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 indeed these are Sasquatch nests, um, you you plant yourself down in an area where you have salmon down at the creek. You have all the salmonberry and and huckleberry and growth, everything up above where you're building these nests. You have the ungulates in this area, but also you plant your butt right below these growths where there's raccoons going up and down the tree um and how many reports have we heard over the years where sasquatch is eating roadkill you know the predominantly speaking uh (laughs) raccoons are the biggest amount of roadkill on the road uh to me it makes perfect sense that maybe a sasquatch would make a nest and uh maybe make it around an area where they can get a lot of protein you know you have the the ground nests there you have the 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 salmonberry, the huckleberry, you have all the uh, salmon down in Lower Creek, and then you're just waiting for these uh, freaking <laughs> uh, uh, raccoons to come down, and uh, maybe that's a meal. I mean, you now it's, it's a long reach, right? But at one point in time, there was a dead raccoon in one of those nests.
0: That's weird, you know, because if they are eating them, why would there be a dead raccoon, right? Right. Right. but I, I'm, I'm confident weird. sasquatches eat them I, i've heard too many stories um, i know a a, a long-term witness uh, actually not far from the nest side really um uh but uh she was saying that you know the sasquatches cruise through every few years um and they're around for like maybe a week week and a half and then they're gone uh but, but she says she can always tell when they're there before she hears them or you know catches a glimpse of one or whatever thing happens because she's been living there all her life She's you know, been living with these things off and on for decades. Um, but she can always tell when they show up because over a period of a week or two um, before she realizes they're around and before they disappear, all the raccoons and possums and skunks in the neighborhood just disappear. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, one of my running theories is, you know, why did a Sasquatch cross the road? Well, for me, it's rather obvious. I took a road trip from Washington to Kentucky and one of the things I noticed uh, on my road trip was that there was <laughs> a huge amount of roadkill. And predominantly speaking, um, most of it was raccoon. And so why was Sasquatch cross road? Cliff, you know, uh, investigating and living in, you know, the Clackamas area, um, the amount of roadkill up that road. You got a lot of deer, but man, raccoons, raccoons are just, I mean— they breed like, you know, pigs. I mean, they're, they're, it's crazy how many raccoon bodies you see on the road and possum bodies. Yeah. And so it makes it makes perfect sense that, you know, when you got these roadside crossings that why did Sasquatch cross road? Well, it wasn't crossing road. It was just looking for roadkill or picking up roadkill. And, you know, you see the car coming, it crosses the road. To me, that's, it makes perfect logical sense. And so when it comes to the nest site, you have a an area where you have all this all of this protein, but, but then again, you have these weird anomalies in the trees, which is the witch's broom, and the raccoons are living in there. At some point in time, that raccoon's got to come down the tree, or those raccoons have to come down the tree, and uh, that's an easy meal. So,
2: I've, of the three people I've spoken to that have seen with their own eyes a Sasquatch pounding on a tree with a branch. Two of the times they were trying to knock a raccoon moose out of the tree. I, I just want to jump back. I was talking about diet. When I far, first saw those photos of the Olympic Project Ness, the first thing that popped in my mind when I saw those stripped-off huckleberry branches was the William Rowe Micah Mountain setting back in 1955 in John Green's book, where he saw the female Sasquatch taking the— the berry branches and putting them in her mouth and strip just pulling it across and stripping all the leaves and berries into her mouth at
1: one time yeah exactly and that's something you know so like i said i can i can talk about this for hours and hours when it relates to many sasquatch sightings or known primate behavior um stripping the leaves So that, I mean, that right there, Bobes, falls in line with my thinking is that Sasquatch possibly, you know, eats the huckleberry leaves for nutrients or for a water source, just like, you know, known primates do. So it makes uh, perfect sense, you know, and then you got the raccoon thing, too, where, uh, you know, raccoons are, I mean, (laughs) good Lord. I got a trail camera out in my backyard and I got a troop of, I don't know if you call it a troop, I guess that's more, you know, chimpanzee. But I have a, a bunch of raccoons in my backyard that uh, I catch on a regular basis. Raccoons are everywhere and they get hit, you know, by cars on a regular basis. I can drive down in my local town here. I live in Belfour, Washington, and I see two or three raccoons dead on the side of the road and, and possums and went out, but raccoons, prevalently speaking, are the most, you know, I mean, look at it nationwide. Raccoons are everywhere. And, uh, you know, they're annoying. If I was a Sasquatch, you know, the the raccoons in my backyard know the snot out of me. I'm not going to kill them, but if I was a Sasquatch, I'd probably pound the snot out
0: of them and eat them. (laughs) They look delicious. Uh, uh, To each their own. And by the way, a group of raccoons is formerly known as a gaze or a nursery. I'm a big <laughs> fan of collective nouns, so I had to look that up real fast. I'd call them a mob. <laughs> I'd call, yeah, I I, I I, know too much about collective nouns because if you see a bunch of crows, it's called a murder of crows. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to call everything a murder of this I or think that.
1: Yeah, I think they're called trash pandas or something like that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, one of my big crusades and things I get on my, my, my soapbox about uh, uh, is up in the game of the Bigfoot community. And I want to point out something that you guys did just wonderfully. Um, and that is d- trying to get to the bottom of it and being more than happy to prove yourself wrong. Because uh, there was this hypothesis that hey maybe you know we have bush nests and that's a gorilla behavior maybe those things up in the trees are um, you know sasquatch nests too so you spend a lot of time a lot of effort and resources real money to find out what's going on and at the end of the day you found out no that's not it we got this other thing going that's another piece of the puzzle that might fit in in some ways but it is not sasquatch directly sasquatch related in that way and uh, I think that's something that uh, the bigfoot community. Uh, we're, we're in general we're kind of terrible at it, but we sure could get better with a little bit of humility. It's like, yeah, it's okay to be wrong about some stuff because when you're wrong about it, you learn something from it. Um, the only reason I know anything at all is because I make so many mistakes all the time. So like this is just one of them. Like yeah, okay, it's not Bigfoot related, but it is a piece of the puzzle, and I think that's really cool. So congratulations to you guys as uh, role models for the community.
2: It's hey, Shane. I know you guys deconstructed at least one of the nests. How many branches made up like an average size or large nest? Did you count them?
1: Oh, man, I'm glad you brought that up. I completely forgot. So, no, we did not ever count the actual amount of branches. Uh, We did deconstruct a nest. We brought, uh, like I said, Dr. Jeff Meldrum out of Idaho State University out there for the listeners. who's a good friend of the uh, Limp Project and, of course, good friends with you guys, um, a pioneer in this field as far as I'm concerned. Uh, We brought him out there and we deconstructed a nest. And he observed and helped uh, lead the deconstructed process. So that was was really interesting and really profound. Uh, We did not count the number of branches in there. Um, But he noticed, like I said before, uh, that there was a lot of construction involved. Um, There there were certain huckleberry branches, you know, (laughs) pushed into the ground. And that was the the huckleberry was uh, constructed. The nest was constructed around that, that it looked like, to his opinion, as we've talked to and brought out zoologists and whatnot, that it took an opposable palm, no teeth marks, no claw marks. You know, a lot of the huckleberry in this area was peeled and snapped. No, none of that stuff. So, having said that, Derek Randles and I actually went back out, and this is where I learned the most. It wasn't the deconstructing process that I learned. Most, uh, you know, from the nest or was m- more profoundly blown away. Actually, Derek Reynolds and I went out there in the drone vicinity of this area, you know, uh, about a quarter mile away, built a nest. We actually built, reconstructed a nest. That's where I think we learned the most. It took uh, two of us, both Derek Reynolds and myself, over 30 minutes to reconstruct the nest, to build a nest, in basically the same fashion as they were originally found. And that was profound to me and Derek. Uh, and, and then I'll tell you this, too. We didn't do it justice. We didn't build it exactly um, alike. We didn't build it exactly the same as we found them. It was close. Don't get me wrong. It was really close. Uh, But watching the deconstruction of that nest that we had built over the several months that uh, we had uh, visualized it and watched it, we realized that we did not do justice to that nest, uh, the original nest site find. What we found was that it took a lot of time, over 30 minutes to build this between two of us. Now, now we have uh, something that can build a nest in that fashion that's an expert probably last time, right? Uh, we also found that a lot of the huckleberry in that area had to be transported uh, as we found in a lot of the original nest sites that uh, a lot of the huckleberry that was transport or th- that made up the original nest site find was transported from over 25 feet away. So it wasn't like it was whatever made these nests was just, you know, sitting there plucking huckleberry tips and went on and, and building a nest. No, they actually had to get up and walk away and grab branches and bring them back and build a nest. And exactly like what we had to do. So that was profound. Uh, like I said, took us over 30 minutes with two people and it was still not accurate. It was close, but not accurate. So that was really, uh, not, I not, really quite honestly, an eye opener for myself and Derek Randall's and uh, really told me that uh, – Something significant really transpired in this area for whatever given reason, for whatever you know, have you something significant happened in this area at one point in time by an unknown thing? And I think that's been proven, given to the many individuals that we've brought out to this area of um, the academic academic world. And uh, so uh, now we're left with the big uh, hmm, what's going on here? So our goal down the road here is to find more nests, whether they're new or old, we want to uh, duplicate this find. We got a couple areas uh, that we have in mind that we may um, possibly find more nests. We've been searching, quite honestly, we've been searching since day one for new nests. We've never found them. Um, That's what makes this uh, nest uh, area so special and so profound and why i i really like i said have a problem with science or those individuals that are not paying attention here because you we don't have to say these are sasquatch nests we don't have to go down that road all we got to do is go what the hell made these nests and why here in the Pacific northwest
0: just tell me that but there's so much to talk about that we haven't even touched on yet but um Okay, so we have nests that we know what they're not. We don't know what made them. There's, there's a model for them in the primate realm. You know, gorillas do this sort of thing. Um, there's uh, two kinds of gorilla behaviors, the ground nest and the bush nest, that um, parallel the site um, that the area can hold um, large animals like this, like sasquatches. Uh, there's been those clacking rocks that were found right next to it. Um, all of that is hair. great. all of that. Is, yeah. And the hair samples. Thank you. Um, all, all of that, that the, the way these nests have been constructed, all of those things point to Sasquatch. Um, but yet as if that wasn't enough to really kind of do this, you know, to kind of drive mm-hmm. it home in, in my door comes walking Lori, uh, Lori, Joe Hamilton. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that like a talk about a huge piece of the puzzle, right? Unbeknownst to the Olympic project, unbeknownst to you or Derek or anything. I think Bobo probably knew about it because he was talking to Laurie at one point. Um, this lady reaches out to me on Twitter or something like that and says, Cliff, I understand you like casts. I have some. Maybe you'd like to check them out. And I went, well, I happen to. Yes, I do like casts. Funny you should mention it. And, I wanted, and but, you know, I hear a lot of stuff on email and stuff. like So I go, well, why don't you send me a picture? Because that's, you know, I'm not going to drive three and a half, four hours to go look at, you know, nonsense if I can help it. Um, so, yeah, she sends me these pictures of like maybe eight or 12 casts. Like, oh, my God. And they weren't all Sasquatch. I could tell even by looking at them. But um, but, but some were, were likely Sasquatch stuff. And, you know, to make a long story short, because I could talk about Lori for a long time, um, make a long story short. There's, there's this lady who is, she's actually a long-term witness. She's been seeing these things off and on since she was a little girl, but it makes sense knowing where she lives that that would be happening. Um, you know, not like once a month, every couple of years, she might catch a glimpse or something, something long-term witness, pretty standard long-term witness. Um, and she takes her dog Marley for a walk almost every day for three to four or five, six hours a day has picnic lunches, but is aware of Sasquatches and over the years, as she sees strange marks in the ground that she's not quite sure what they are, she pours plaster in them. And she has collected quite a nice collection of footprint casts. Um, Some of them are, well, they mostly show one individual, really, in my opinion. But uh, there's at least two, maybe three individuals represented, but definitely two, because we have one foot that's about 14, 15 inches, and then we have another foot represented that is seven um, and all of these casts were taken within what? What would you say, Shane? Three air miles, four air miles? Um, oh, easily, yeah, yeah, easily. of of the nests themselves. Yeah. both north of the nest site, south of the nest site, and on the sides of the east-west sort of thing of the of the nest site. Um, and some of those casts are juvenile individuals, which goes back to those bush nests. There, there's a, if these things are actually model nests, you know, the, uh, of adults showing the juveniles how to make it, well, to support that hypothesis, you better come up with some juvenile something. And sure enough, they were already there waiting for the Olympic project. Lori had them in her collection. Um, now, Lori's uh, lent me the casts. Uh, I've made copies of the best ones that are a probable Sasquatch origin. And I even own some of the originals now, or just gave them to me um, out of the kindness and generosity of her heart. But here we go again. Those footprints come from all around the nest site. And if that, right. if that's not a missing piece of the puzzle, I don't know what is. And including um, the photograph of that footprint that you and I found um, last May or a year ago, May, whenever that was, I don't know. Yeah. My sense of time is pretty elastic. So I have a hard time with that stuff without <laughs> checking my notes. But so, yeah, talk about that a little bit if you can.
1: Oh, I mean, uh, so, yeah, your connection with Lori has been profound because I had no idea that she was investigating or even looking at this area. And it's (laughs) it's been an amazing trip because she's been out uh, without, you know, being unbeknownst to her. uh, The nest site was, you know, a few miles away and she's out here uh, having. Finding tracks in this area. I mean, amazing impressions. And then, of course, you you know, uh, of course, uh, clip. you came down and invited me to investigate this area where uh, there was this recent, you know, last, uh, what, yeah, oh, probably what, two, almost two years now, uh, this siding down, you know, really in close proximity to the nest site where some kid was throwing rocks into a creek. Uh, this creek that is the same creek that uh fills in all the salmon, filters in all the salmon and whatnot up to the nest site. Uh here's this kid that that Lori basically hangs around hangs around that area and and collects impressions. And then you have this kid that is out throwing rocks into a creek and then sees two individuals uh that we, you know, you know, you invited me out to investigate and uh of course, uh, we find this really interesting impression that happens to fit in with uh, exactly what Lori's finding around this area. Uh, I was just, you know, I, I'll be honest, I was floored. I was just completely floored. But you know what? Uh, Cliff, to backtrack a little bit, maybe not backtrack per se, but one of the things that you did a, you did a, uh, you did a uh, thing down in Bend Oregon with with Cindy Cadell. You did your one of your speaking functions. I I spoke at it down there uh, the the Bigfoot Bolton Brew. And one of the things that really stuck out with me was that your your approach. You said uh, it's, it's about time that we start talking about these things as a fact. No, they exist. And that really stuck out with me. And so I am going you know you have a lot of individuals that are working on this subject matter, talking about the subject matter and, and, and non-absolutes. It's It really is about time to kind of, you know, regardless of where it leads us and regardless of those individuals that want to look at it seriously, start talking about this subject matter seriously. Uh, Lori is a perfect example. This is a woman that really uh, you know she's had her experiences and whatnot that is <laughs> actively investigating and and uh, corroborating everything we're finding uh, for me it's really about time to talk start talking in absolutes rather than the sasquatch did do this the sasquatch do that i mean uh both are you still around uh what are your thoughts on that i agree
2: like i, I don't talk about like uh sasquatch exists i I always speak with like certainty that they exist. My, my thing is I just say, there's no question they exist. The question to me is what are they? Right. Right. Yeah, the
0: question to me is how they exist.
2: Right. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Cause uh, what are they is, is an interesting question. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But like, how do they go about their daily deal? You know, that, that's the cool part for me because if we can nail, oh, nail that down, if we could even get that slightly in focus, Um, It's going to help us um, predict their future movements, which of course can result in some neat things like like footage, for example. Um, I'm not really, I don't advocate taking of a specimen or anything like that, but I think footage would be an excellent uh, step towards recognition. It wouldn't do it, of course, but, uh, um, but I certainly would soften the blow of discovery if we got some really interesting footage, like say, for example, one of these Sasquatches in the nest site, interacting with its young that we know we're in the area because lori has several casts showing the same individual um within a few miles of the nest site so we know there are young in the area we, and we know there's a 15 or 14 inch foot in that area um and that sighting that lori called me in on um there were two sasquatches two adult sasquatches that were observed yeah. um so there that implies three individuals in the area um which is well, which is just at, just opens all a Pandora's box of questions, you know, this unending questions with that. It's like, well, okay, what is their social structure? How does that pan out? Are those two females that were raising a set of young or, or what? I don't know. I could go on and on. There's so much we don't know about the situation, but little by little with the help of the Olympic project and individuals like you, Shane and Lori and whoever else is participating, you know, a little bit is coming into focus. It's cool.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, I- you know, I, I, if you guys include this on the show, I'll just say this. You know, you know, clip that I obtained possibly some interesting uh, truck cam footage in an adjacent area uh, yeah. to the NEST site uh, that, uh, you know, I purposely – so 2017, I moved up to Washington State, and uh, I happened to uh, be in an area um, that I could park my trailer uh, that was – relatively within miles close to the nest site. And it was also an area where I could throw a stone and hit a logging gate where two different loggers uh, saw apparently a family unit of Sasquatch at two different times. These guys didn't know each other, but it was like the same time hour, like two or three in the morning, as they were waiting to be led into the gate. So I camped out there, and and I obtained possibly— uh, a Sasquatch uh, on a trail camera. But by saying that, what I'm meaning is I I got something bipedal on an old trail camera that I utilize, and so I mean it it, it it's not necessarily a Sasquatch, but it's something that I feel is bipedal, uh, and that's a whole nother story. So I just want to throw that in there because I think that adds to what Lori's doing, what the OP's doing, your involvement, Cliff, and whatnot, and so. Yeah,
0: yeah. there's a lot going on. Uh, and a lot. To, your, to the best of your knowledge, so as we're recording, this is December 2019. What's the last sighting report from this general area that you're aware of?
1: Oh, the last sighting report That's is come probably to oh, come to my ears. Yeah, so probably, honestly, uh, about a year and a half ago.
2: Oh, it's been a while then. Okay. You just mentioned get that thing on uh, trail cam. You said it's an old camera you have. What is it? It seems like almost all the Bigfoot footage and still uh, picks from trail cams are the old, cheap, junky ones. Have you noticed that?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think uh, actually uh, it's funny because I think Cliff mentioned that before, and that's why you know Cliff mentioned it. And I started paying attention. I'm like, holy crap, this guy's right. <laughs> no, you're right. So it was a, what I was using every was once a, in a while. Like
0: a, even a blind squirrel can find a nut.
1: <laughs> it was an old uh wild game innovations camera. I mean like an old one, like one of my first game cameras that I've ever owned. No sound, and uh the thing was what was I what I had done with this camera or cameras, uh, I had placed them on my tra- travel trailer uh because we were living on a staying on a a a, a friend's piece of property. Was Alan's it like era. on a bumper
0: or something? Or the bumper it, of the trailer? or Exactly.
1: How- no, no, exactly. On the bumper of the travel trailer. So, you know, I, I basically placed the trail cameras on the bumper, uh, one of them on the bumper. The other one was uh, on a stump next to the wheel well uh, or next to the wheel on the side of my trailer. And something had triggered that before the figure walked, you know, it, it, it's the same figure. I mean, it's the same thing. Triggered at the same time. So basically what i done was just tried to make the camera a part of my vehicle because I had lights on. And I, I actually think that's the key to maybe obtaining when you're out in the woods and you're, you have a vehicle, your car camping or travel trailer camping. I think that's the key is to place the camera on your vehicle, on your person or whatever have you to obtain that footage. If something's in the area, I mean, that's uh it worked for me, I think. I really do. worked for Mike Green. It
2: worked for uh, Paul down there in Alabama with the Spooky Mountain, that thermal footage. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's proven to work for sure. It was, And by the way, was that tri- where your trailer was? Was that the karaoke cabin where that was?
1: Just, da- just down the road. So about uh, maybe two miles down the road from there. Okay. Yeah. Same area. Um, I just decided not to put cameras on the trees. Uh, like I said, uh, you guys probably heard this. I had, uh, for two weeks, I was getting... Um, I was, for two weeks, having the camera on my travel trailer, two of them, uh, one on the side, one on the bumper, like Cliff said. Uh, I was getting coyotes, uh, I was getting uh, deer, the same individuals coming through my camp, day in and day in, night out, every time, boom, boom, boom. And then this figure... um messes with my cute uh, my uh cooler as my wife described she woke me up and said hey something's messed with our cooler she wakes me up and then i uh wake up out of bed i get outside and i look out i don't see nothing uh it's probably a bear blah 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 um well i look at my camera the next day and uh and uh, trust me prior to that happening i did hear my cooler i heard ice in the the cooler moving so i knew something was messing uh with my cooler like my wife described she's like something's messing with our cooler i heard that so i'm like oh i need to get up and check this out shame on us for leaving our cooler outside i go outside i don't see anything well next day i get up there and i check the footage and there was something that appears to be bipedal walking by the camera and uh that triggered one of the cameras but was so swift i believe uh that it didn't get caught and then it walked by one of the other cameras and it did get caught and just the close proximity and the swiftness of it that you know that it did get caught but um there's something to be said about the old cameras man there's something to be said about that i don't know what it is but there's something to be said about uh the older generation cameras i don't know what that is but i know Cliff I talked think- about that
0: I think there's more of them. I think it's just a numbers game. You know, these cheap ones are the older ones that people just have around. And I, I think, point. I think six, $100 cameras does a far better job than one, $600 camera.
2: What time was that Shane? What was the moon phase? And was there any external lighting out there? Like a, any other light
1: sources when you got the footage? Um so the time was oh man I I don't want to so don't don't misquote me here but I believe it was 1:30 in the morning uh maybe 2 in the morning I know so here's the thing was I I didn't set my camera the camera right it says like 2014 or some weird date no it was 2017 it was like 2:30 in the morning um I wasn't really I sh- you know here we go not a really good researcher Right. But I didn't set the camera date all that. Right. I just had a camera out there saying now, ah, whatever. I've been recording coyotes and, and all these other animals. I'm, I just said, well,
0: it out there. to be fair, you weren't exactly researching either. You were, you were just staying there until the house you were buying went through and you can move in. You know, you were, you weren't researching. You were actually kind of like living on a friend's property for a little while. So to your credit, true. You just go easy true, on yourself, but, you know. No, uh,
1: true, true. But I knew of these reports that had occurred, or these encounters that had occurred, um, just down the road. I mean, literally. I okay, maybe, almost, maybe there is
0: no excuse. I was trying to be no, cool, man. But you're no, right. You're no, right. No, you screwed. You done no screwed excuse. up, Corson.
1: How tall was you? uh, guesstimating the height was about seven feet. I mean, guesstimating. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, so,
0: I've seen the footage, excuse me. Uh, like I, yeah, I've seen the ahead. footage. There's no way to tell how tall it is. Unfortunately you can uh, beyond guesstimating because you don't get the full body in the picture. Um, the thing probably I'm guessing just from my, I've seen it five or six times, maybe, um, It walked by the trailer. I'm guessing no further than three or four feet away from the trailer. Um, and the, the camera was on the bumper. So what you get is an overexposed hairy thing, um, walking by, you can see the legs move, but you're basically, if I remember right, seeing from about the waist to about the knees or something like that.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult and, you know, live and learn. It was just one of those things where I thought I'd place a trail camera on my bumper and, and we're talking, I, I spent uh, almost a month on this property getting the known animals. And so what I was going to get at was that, you know, I got, for the first two to three weeks, I got known animals. I mean, I got, like I said, raccoons and and, and uh, deer and, 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 and coyotes and all that stuff. Well, that whatever it was passed through the frame, you know, that night at uh, roughly two in the morning, That my wife woke me up to. um, For the next week, there was nothing. There was nothing caught on my troll camera after that. Nothing. For a week straight. And so, uh, my best assumption was that whatever passed through there was quite the alpha. Quite the uh, something that... I mean, every night I would get the usual suspects. Every night I would get those individuals. And so, when that figure passed by my camera... For the first week, I got nothing. So, you know, it is what it is. I don't know. And then after after that week, I started, you know, the animals started coming come back in. Now, you know, the, the raccoons and the deer and the, everything else. There were two doe that would come in every night. They disappeared after that figure walked in. Well, after a week or so, they came back in and they were back into the area. So, whatever that thing was... In close proximity to the nest site, in close proximity to where these two different loggers saw uh, what they would call uh, Sasquatch family units, uh, there was nothing. So, man, it's it's, it's interesting. So, so here, we'll here's a question there.
0: for bo- here's a question for both of you because what you're talking about now kind of brings up something that I've been pl- rolling around in my head for a while. So, um, from my past experience. I can't decide if there's a pattern or not because people hear about, uh, like like I mentioned that lady earlier, you know, like I can always tell when they're around because all the animals disappear. You know, you're talking about it right now. The animals disappeared for a while. But yet in other circumstances, um, I look for Sasquatches where there is the most animal life, the most buzzing and clicking and, you know, things scurrying about and owls and coyotes, the whole nine, like as much activity as possible. Do either of you, um, have thoughts about what direction to go with that? Do, what would one look for sasquatches where there's no animal activity, and with the idea that perhaps they've kind of dampened it, put it, like, dampened it down a bit, or would you look for sasquatch activity where is the most, where there is the most animal activity, or does it not matter at all, and it's just close your eyes and touch the map? I think most would be best. Why?
2: Because that food. There's, there's no animals there. There's no food form there, really. I mean, let's, well, I mean, there's the plants and that sort of thing, but then again, squatches roam so much, they're seen in places where there's no other animals. I mean, they're seen, they pop up all kinds of places, but I think if you're trying to find one, yeah, I'd go where the most animals are.
0: So, with this thing about, like, okay, the, there was a Sasquatch there, and for the next week or two there was nothing there, but the Sasquatch might have still been in the area. Does that oh, enter I- your mind? You know, don't you know, you hear what I'm saying? Like, like, obviously, the, the most animal, the more animals, the better. But at the same time, when I heard these stories about, yeah, the, everything went quiet or the Sasquatch, you know, I knew, what there, I knew there was one here because, the, you know, all the skunks and raccoons went missing or, you know, that sort of stuff. Like, how, how does that play out in your guy's head?
1: Yeah, I was going to say the absence of activity actually, I think, plays a huge role. I mean, uh, that's something to be documented, period. I mean, if uh, an absence after an influx of an, uh, possible activity and something to be checked out. But uh, you don't rule out anything. I mean, I, quite honestly, Cliff, I don't have an answer. I mean, uh, a lot of the areas that I look at, there's a high um, influx of animal activity. And a lot of the areas I look at personally, it, there's no activity. Uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's uh, apples and oranges. Uh, I, don't, I don't have an answer. What I would say is this: If you're investigating an area for a lengthy period of time, and you recognize the influx of animals or the deflux, uh, the the lack of animals uh, or food sources in an area, that's something to be uh, really something you should be paying attention to. I mean, uh, that's what I do. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't have a really honest answer. Uh, what I'll say is, just like I said, is that uh, in certain areas, you know, you get this, you know, I, and, and I've worked with a lot of witnesses such as yourself. Uh, you get these areas where, you know, people describe um, a, a completely, you know, they go in the area and there's like, you know, no animal life or, you know, where they expect animal life. And then they go in the areas, and then, you know, there's a lot of animal life. Uh, document everything, document the animal life, document the you know, all that. So, uh, yeah, I don't have an answer for you, I guess, what I, is, is what I'm That's saying. That's
0: right. I, I'm not exactly sure I had a question, so it works out well, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably well, didn't. And I probably. No, no, yeah, with, uh, with an answer. No, just no, no, yeah, just looking for thoughts, looking for thoughts on the matter, because I've seen it, I've seen both sides of that coin, you know. Well, well, what what are your thoughts, Cliff? What are your thoughts? I think I would always go towards where that with the highest concentration of animal activity, but uh, see, I don't know, because if you want to chase around, it seems a lot. That seems to be that seems like it would be a lot more productive. Um, and from my experience, it is very productive for Sasquatches, because if you want to go to places where there's no animals, well, God, that, the forest is full of those places. Um, yeah, you got to narrow it down somehow,
1: you know, because yeah. it's like, it's like yeah. the
0: ocean, you know, 90% of the fish are in 10% of the ocean. Well, that's true. Of the forest as well. Is, but unfortunately, I think in the forest, maybe it moves around a bit more, you know? Yeah.
1: Right. The cool thing is this time of year, I think you can almost uh, pinpoint not, you know, maybe pinpoints are a bad word, but almost uh, direct uh, where you'd want to investigate. Uh, Cliff, I mean, this time of year, where would you want to investigate? I know where I'd be. Uh, I'd be closer to the coast, personally. Uh, You know, I I live here in Washington, and I'd be closer to the coast. Where would if Barrickman be this time of year investigating if uh, he was out there researching Sasquatch.
0: Oh well, I I've, I've been hitting the Colton area lately. Um, it mostly because it's close. You know, like yesterday afternoon, for example, I had a leisurely morning, uh, had coffee and breakfast with my wife, and around eleven o'clock, I packed some threw, threw some stuff in the car and headed out to Colton. And I stayed out till about dark or a little bit thereafter, you know, driving the roads, becoming more familiar with it, pausing at all the marshes, looking around for footprints, walking trails, you know, that sort of stuff, poking around in places I probably ought not to be in. Um, But I I chose that spot. I mean, the coast would be great, but it's it's two and a half, three hour drive for me or something like that. Um, I think it's more important to hit the local spots, hit the spots I can get to quickly and easily, frequently. I think that will do more for me. Um, over the long run. And the reason I chose Colton is I've, st- I've talked about it a little bit more, a little bit, uh, on the previous episodes you can listen to, but, um, in 2015, 2017 and 2018, there were either footprints or sightings in this one particular area. And when I say one particular area, it's actually a pretty large area. It's in the, you know, goat mountain in general, uh, in the general vicinity of goat mountain. Um, but all this stuff happens in this particular area, always in November. And of course, it's not November now, but it's December. But I figured close enough. Um, but I was missing anything from, well, from this year. I kept my ears to the ground, but nothing came to me in 2019 from the Colton area. So uh, I was a little disappointed there. But still, I thought it was a good bet considering, you know, three of the last, or, you know, it was it three of the last five years, we got good stuff out of there. Two uh, footprint photograph, a footprint cast, a sighting report, and then just a hearsay about footprints. But the hearsay about footprints was from this elk hunter who sent me a photograph, a beautiful footprint in the ground. It's just beautiful. You can see all five toes. The shape is the length to width ratio is perfect. Has a mid tarsal pressure Ridge right in it. Um, I took the GPS off GPS coordinates off of the picture and the EXIF information Then I, I trekked down there in the beginning of no, November, maybe late October or something to go check it out A big swampy area. It's, it's bitching. It's rad. Um, and of course, uh, one of the sighting reports we had, the one in 2018, the last week of November, this, this, this hunter saw one, this, uh, bow hunter, um, he was trailing a, a herd of deer and he saw one of these things run up the ridge and jump on the road and he scared him and he got out, you know, um, where he told me the thing ran, uh, when I went to go look for footprints, um, is, was about 70 yards away from where I found the footprints. And I thought that was really encouraging because I believe a hoaxer, um, or somebody who planted those footprints, would tell me exactly where to go to find them. Um, but that wasn't the case. So anyway, I'm, I'm meandering in my thoughts and speech now. Forgive me, but I would go, I would be hitting Colton or staying at home. <laughs> so,
2: I have a question that's a little bit off topic on this. Shane, did you guys have any scientists or primatologists that came out and checked out the nest site that was so impressed they brought back colleagues, other PhDs or, you know, other scientists?
1: You know, not as as of yet. Uh, uh, But, you know, to get to that question, no. Uh, It's going to happen next year. Uh, We've had a few uh, uh, individuals pop out uh, from different uh, academic uh, realms, both – uh, primatologists, anthropologists, zoologists that are coming back out uh, next year and then who they bring along with them will, uh, you know, it's uh, to be continued. We'll see what happens there. But uh, the fact is we brought a few individuals out uh, over the, this past year that are very, very intrigued and come back. they come back for more and I hope they bring some colleagues out. So, yes, to answer your question, um, it's a a work in progress. One of the things with uh, the subject matter is everybody wants an answer now. We don't, you know, which sucks, which sucks. Sucks for Uh, them. It it sucks for them. It doesn't suck for us. Exactly, Cliff. And it's one of those things where it really annoys me because everybody wants an answer. But this isn't... uh, Everybody wants science, you know, they want science. They want the here and now and all that. But, you know, science takes time and it takes time. It takes uh, if you're really re- if you're really serious about the subject matter, it's going to take time. I'm sorry. Uh, unless a, a body lands, you know, on the table, uh, it's going to take time. If That's what you're about. I'm not necessarily about proving them. I already know they exist. That's not a that's a yeah. no brainer for me. It's not even a question. What's a question for me is, like Cliff said earlier, what are they? Who, you know, what do they do? Where do they go? That's the questions I want to answer, but we're getting there. And, uh, you know, it's a slow process. But the nests have a finite life,
2: and I know they're deteriorating rapidly. I know they're in much worse shape now. They're even going to be, how much longer are they going to be viable, study, you know, those, those, same nest going to be studyable, you know, like where they're still decent shape. Are they, are they all decomposing?
1: Oh dude. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, uh, the majority of them are vastly decomposing. I mean, they're almost gone. Uh, so, uh, there's a few that are still within, uh, I guess you could view them and, and maybe appreciate them for what they, they are, uh, possibly, Uh, but no, they're, you know, uh, de- de- deteriorating vastly and so uh, that's why we're you know at, you know working with Derek and the limb project that's what we're trying to find more um, I think it's going to be I mean really do it's such a hard task it's almost near impossible but I think we can uh, based on what we know now um, regardless of what made the nest. you know you don't know, you know, say put Sasquatch aside something as I said earlier made these nests uh and it wasn't a one-time affair something's going to make more nests at some point in time hopefully we can find those and figure out what's doing it uh, i have my uh, assumptions i have my opinions you know as to what made these nests uh how they were formulated and how they transpired and and all that stuff i have all that in my head doesn't mean dilly squat at the end of the day so we'll see um I I put a challenge out recently at the Sasquatch Summit. I said, Hey, any of you hunters, hikers, fishermen, Sasquatch enthusiasts, when you're out in the woods, get off trail. Don't hurt yourselves. Trust me, don't hurt yourself. Don't go missing. But uh, these are the things we're looking for. We think to possibly find more nests, and there are more nests out there, whether they're new or old. There are more nests to be found, and so. I put that challenge out at the recent uh, Sasquatch Summit, and uh, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, hopefully somebody steps forward. I did hear from uh, back from a few Native Americans uh, from a certain uh, reservation up in the Olympics that uh, supposedly came across Ness. I'm going to investigate
0: that and uh, maybe just a chauffeur down the road. One of the things we haven't touched on is that I I know one, you know, PhD, Dr. Meldrum, of course, um, that was so impressed with these that he took samples from the core samples from the Nest and raised funds through a Kickstarter or some sort of um, crowdsourcing fundraising thing. Yeah, I think it was Indiegogo. um, There you go. And uh, he got these things tested um for e dna which is environmental dna where you can test the environment in which an animal lives and get dna samples from all the animals that live in that environment assuming that they're you know shedding skin cells or saliva or whatever like microscopically you know so to speak um so uh and, and can you tell us about the results that he got by testing i think four of the seven samples um that he collected at site
1: well, yeah, basically, I mean, uh, the example or the uh, uh, test results were basically a lot of known animal. I mean, you talking about uh, bear, um, deer, you name it. Uh, one of the surprise results was um, both uh, flying squirrel, which actually I had no idea of flying squirrel in the area, uh, but flying squirrel and also horse, which didn't uh, at first it surprised me. But then thinking back, you know, uh, you have a lot of birds in this area and they're going to drop, you know, hair samples and whatnot. So, of course, this isn't an area where horse would be in. But if uh, a bird's building a nest, they're going to be, you know, possible horse samples because they're in the adjacent areas. Yeah, there's ranches and whatnot. So, so get to the nitty gritty stuff, the really interesting stuff. So. Uh, a lot of the samples um, that we gave were actually um, poor samples. So Dr. Meldrum, uh, who collected the samples, uh, kept them in a the freezer for a while. And uh, that I guess that's not the best way to, per se, preserve a sample. And so they were severely degraded. I guess that's the word. They were severely degraded. Um of course, uh, the uh, not, not ta- just ta- in the
0: freezer or anything either though. Like they, these things were years old by the time you got uh, he tested them. Exactly,
1: exactly. So they were you know degraded not just from the freezer samples, but degraded from years of being in the woods. And so uh, what, what what was really interesting was the fact that uh, they came back. the 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 interesting samples came back as you know human. Um, but the thing was, you know, you, when you, when you look at the samples and you go, okay, they're human, uh, you're looking, pardon me, you're looking at, uh, oh, contamination, blah, blah, blah. Uh, no, not per se, no, not per se at all. In fact, I was actually, when the, the, the samples came back as human, my question to the, uh, taught this tell, uh, uh, New York university who's since moved <laughs> universities, I said, what well, percentage? And, uh, you really didn't have a percentage per se. I mean, they were so degraded. It was, it could have been 99% human. It could have been, you know, hundred percent human. Who knows? They were, they were degraded based on the time in the field and, and storage use. Um, but then again, that didn't, didn't surprise me. I mean, that really did not surprise me at all. I mean, we're looking at samples from a nest. I expect them always to come back as cl- I mean, if we're dealing with, uh, if these indeed, indeed are Sasquatch nests, if this is indeed a Sasquatch uh, sort of scenario, I really do feel that they can come back really close, you know, when we look at them. Within the microchondrial aspect of things, they're going to come back really close to human. Uh, nobody we have not looked at these samples within the nuclear aspect, you know, to see the exact decimals, the exact percentage human. Like we talking ninety nine point nine 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 percent human, ninety nine point you know eight percent human. Uh, that's where that's where the loop is. And uh, it, until, Personal opinion is until uh, the money's there, the real funding with the real correct samples, uh, we're always going to come back human, and that doesn't surprise me. I mean, Cliff, does does that really surprise you?
0: Well, I don't know a whole lot about DNA, and unfortunately, I wish I, you know, I guess I wish I did, but could always read about it, um, so I guess I don't wish that hard. But um, I, I don't understand enough about it. I mean, for me, knowing that chimpanzees are 98 point whatever percent, point three or 4 percent identical to us in our DNA, um, and I mean, for God, I mean, earthworms are over 60 percent identical to us in DNA, so it's right. not that big of a jump. And if these things are hominins, um, in other words, branches off the human family tree, I would expect them to be much closer than 98.4 percent like the chimps. Because we broke off from them, you know, six to you know, four to eight million years ago, somewhere in there, like six million years ago, um, and if these things are, you know, paranthropus or something like that, then we're looking at about a two or three million or, or even less um, branch off, um, distant, I guess. So I don't know. I would expect more. Uh, I, I asked Todd about that. I I I I, I, I met Todd face to face finally. Um, we have corresponded with him a little bit over the years, but I finally met him at Lauren Coleman's gathering last year at the International Cryptozoology Museum. Um, I spoke there, and along with some other people. and Todd came to talk to talk to us and me and and some other folks. And I asked him about that. and he and he said, "I'm completely confident that it was human. blah, blah, blah. I could tell you the, you know the ethnicity and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I guess Dr. Meldrum's been, uh, Asking other people and they seem to think that there's possibilities that perhaps that might be, um, an easily confused situation, I guess. I'm not saying it well, but I don't know that much about DNA to use the proper language. So forgive me for that. Right. But, uh, Likewise. Um, whereas Todd, the guy who did the test is completely confident of his results. Other people who did not do the tests, of course, um, have left the door open to some sort of misidentification or margin of error or something like that. I'm not quite sure how to say it, but I think you could hear and hear the song I'm singing. Um, Yeah. And of course the good news is Dr. Meldrum didn't test all of the samples. And there's also a possibility of getting new samples. If fresher nests can be located. Um, Well, there's certainly Sasquatches in this area. So we're kind of putting that on your shoulders. Unfortunately, since you're the, you're the one When's the last time you were out in the area. Actually Shane, like when's the last time you were poking around out there?
1: oh yeah absolutely so um obviously the goal right now is to find either fresher nests or something or or newer nests to either collect uh data uh and samples from those nests or to just replicate this find because it's that rare i mean really is that rare and and for the viewers listening to the show yes there have been other nests found throughout history i mean uh you know there there have been many nests found throughout history just not in this number this number of nests found in this area is pr- rather profound so uh you know uh, there have been other nests found um so boost the ground uh shoot that we're literally i moved up to washington to do what i do right now um because i believe in it and so I am out uh, every other day uh, in areas you know, being safe, you know, uh, looking for um, areas that may have the uh, may have other nests or may be that area that I want to look into. So it's a it's a work in progress, you know i'm I'm you know, i'm I'm one man band in this particular area uh derek and, and whatnot join me uh, but it's very difficult everybody has day jobs and whatnot so it's very difficult but it's it's fun and no doubt about it no doubt about it i think at some point in time within you know i'm not gonna actually put a, a time on it but we will find or be led to more nests um i'm hoping they are the same caliber that we've been led to discover and We'll go from there but it's uh like i said before it's it's just a fun ride and yeah,
0: yeah it's interesting that um it's been quiet there for a while we, we talked about the most recent sighting being the one that you and i investigated um back in may of i guess 2018 uh and you know I, to my knowledge i don't think Lori's pulled any prints um recently either i've got to check in with her but um I don't think that she's pulled any prints recently either. Maybe they're just not in the area because that's another one of those patterns that I've perhaps, you know, vaguely discerned over the years is that they seem to inhabit an area for a while, maybe a few months, maybe a few years. And then they go to a different area and hang out over there for a while, maybe pop by every once in a while. But they're they're not like there as consistently. Um, Right. The water spot in Bluff Creek Bobo, for example, might be one of those. Right. Um, They seem to be there for three or four or five years, pretty solid. And then, you know, now they're just not so much around. At least I haven't gotten the activity there. Of course, I haven't worked that spot for a number of years now, but I kind of stopped working it because I wasn't getting anything.
2: Yeah, I've gotten skunked every time I've been there lately. Um, That's the way it goes.
0: Yeah, but then again, those guys put cameras up all over there too. So maybe that kind of dampened the enthusiasm of the local Bigfoots to hang out there.
1: Yeah, Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I talked to Cliff about this earlier uh, before the show was that there's been an influx of black bear up in this area uh, for whatever reason. There's been an influx of black bear, and uh, then now we have this lack of Sasquatch sightings or, or Sasquatch reports, per se. So whether that plays a part or not, I, honestly, I, I think that Sasquatch you know lives within... <laughs> You know, uh, black bear and Sasquatch, you know, they coincide with each other. But I will tell you this, in this area of the nest site, that there's been influx of black bear over the last year and a half and uh, almost two years and a lack of Sasquatch reports. Maybe just perhaps just saying as an idea, maybe... The Sasquatch, if they are in this area, have moved out, and the black bear feel comfortable moving in, or they've been pushed up into this area. And maybe, and I've been looking at this, maybe the reports are going to, you know, um, appear south of this area or north of this area or whatever have you. Uh, this area is close to to the water, so uh, say east or west would be <laughs> not a, a good thing. I don't think they're going east or west or they're going to land in the water. But north or west of this area, per se, maybe the Black Bear are uh, more comfortable in this area now. It, there has been an influx. Like I said, I don't know if that means anything. Um, but uh, the lack of Sasquatch reports in this area, a uh, little uh, eye-opening. Uh, it, it makes me think, put it that way.
0: Well, man, I'm on nest overload right now because there's a lot of information associated with this. Um, It's not just like, Hey, there's some weird, there's some weird piles of branches in the ground. There's so much going on with this. Um, Things that have baffled seasoned, seasoned uh, outdoors people. Um, This timber cruisers never seen these things. Derek Randall's has never seen anything like it. The bear biologists have never seen anything like it, but the primatologists have seen something like it. That's super cool. There's a ground nest, there's bush nests, which might indicate um, juveniles in the area. And that um, hypothesis is supported by Lori's casts of the juveniles uh, not two miles away from the nest site. Um, there's a rock clax, there's the hair samples, there's weird eDNA samples. There is a lot going on with this, and the story's not even being done told at this point. I can't thank you enough, Shane, for coming on the, the show with Bobo and I to kind of give us an update of where everything stands with the nest. It's hard to get information about this stuff unless you're going to the conferences and listening to you speak.
2: What else is significant about the nesting site is it's the first time where a timber company halted logging operations and let some Bigfoot researchers come in and gave you guys five years to study the area before they logged it. That's unprecedented.
0: Um. How cool is that, man? So again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing you again at Squatch Fest. I know that you and I are doing a gig together at the end of January in Kelso Longview. Are you going to be speaking about the nests and whatnot at that event?
1: Probably touching upon that, but we got some new sub to talk about within the Elm Project. I think that uh, individuals are going to be really uh, interested to hear. So I'm uh, glad to be there. Yeah, oh yeah, a little. little uh, We'll see what happens there. But uh, we got some uh, interesting stuff to share uh, and uh, new interesting stuff to share, I should say. So, yes, uh, glad to speak uh, alongside Cliff and and uh, whatnot. So uh, look forward to that, and uh, we'll see what happens, guys. Right, right on.
2: on. Yeah, folks, if you want to keep it with Shane what he's got going on, Monster X Radio podcast. It's great. It's one of the ones I go to. It's one of the three I listen to myself. I highly recommend it. And thank you so much, Shane. I learned a lot tonight.
1: Well, thanks, man. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Cliff. I really enjoyed uh, the conversation tonight. And uh, I could talk for hours with you guys as we we do. So Yeah, we already thanks have. For having on and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right.
2: Yeah, that same weekend, you guys are going to be at Squatch Fest. I'm going to be at Starved Rock Lodge uh, an hour west of Chicago and Illinois doing a talk on Sasquatch the 25th of January. So I won't be with you guys, but I'll be out there. So if you're in Illinois, Indiana, that area around there, come out and say hi and uh, check out the conference.
1: Really appreciate you guys. Appreciate your show. And uh, thanks for having me on. You guys have a Merry Christmas and a very squatchy new year. All right. Good night.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond.